We're kind of in this in-between right now. And so I want to do is take a minute to talk about what happens after the resurrection. And so uh, last week we obviously celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, but there's a lot of stuff that happens after the resurrection in order for us to get to the place where we are sitting here today singing songs and worshiping Jesus. And so after the resurrection of Jesus, if you haven't followed the story, uh, what we find is after he appears to the first few people, eventually he appears to more people. And there's a fact usually crowds that he appears to. And so it's kind of this interesting thing where he appears to these group of people. He kind of speaks to them and inspires them, and especially the disciples. He has some parting words with them. And then he leaves. And there's like this moment where they freaked out kind of, you know, when, when Jesus is crucified. And then now he's resurrected from the dead. And so you think they'd have all the confidence in the world. But there's kind of this moment where they're kind of freaking out again. And Jesus empowers them and he sends the Holy Spirit. And what's crazy is what happens after. And I don't know if you've ever studied what happens after the resurrection, but essentially, um, against all odds, a band of Jewish nobodies, and they were Jewish nobodies. These people were not well-known in the region. Uh, and, and in fact, what we see is even as Jesus dies, I mean, it's a small number of people that are even kind of there. And even after the resurrection, it's only a small group of people, about 70, they believe, that are there um, in this room. And, and so a band of Jewish nobodies who are following a now-crucified carpenter slash quasi-rabbi went into the streets of Jerusalem with no fanfare. And they go in and they start preaching and teaching. And what's fascinating is they had no territory. They had no military. And in the beginning, you got to remember this, they had no sacred text. All they're doing is referencing things from this old text and telling stories about what they had experienced. And they have the audacity to announce to the world that the final sacrifice for sin had been made, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. And so not only has the sacrifice been made, but the sacrifice was made. And then this Jesus, and I love this language, whom you crucified, has risen from the dead. And they start to talk about these things that Jesus did. And they talk about the new kingdom that's been established here on earth. And after the resurrection... The world has changed forever. Not just like our lives as Christians, but really the world has changed because of what happened through Jesus. And, and it's crazy to think that Jesus, who never traveled more, than, traveled more than 70 miles outside of where he was born, who really only in their world had a small number of followers who were not well known, they literally changed the world. And what's even crazier is this. When we think about this, that this group of men and women were able to do this, I mean, the reality is, is that there have been other movements, even at the time, even more successful movements than what Jesus had done. And so the response should be, well, who cares? Like, who cares what you're saying this Jesus has done? And in fact, in reality, many scholars will say that more than likely this movement should have ended within one, maybe two generations. And then it should have just like every other movement kind of went away unless something else has happened. Now, now you should study this for yourself. It's kind of fascinating, kind of the beginning of the church and all the things that they go through and experience and all the persecution they go through and all the stuff they go through in Rome. But, But what's even more amazing is this. About 347 years later, never having any territory, no authority in the land, no military, Emperor Theodosius declares an edict that Christianity is the authorized religion of the very empire that crucified Jesus and tried over and over and over for two centuries to crush the movement. Think about that. 
that eventually this movement that started with this small group of people about this risen Savior eventually goes to the place that it overtakes the greatest empire the world has ever seen and becomes the most influential, influential movement within the empire. So how did we get here? Because it wasn't through military, and it wasn't through violence, and it wasn't through force, and it wasn't through this. It was through something else. And to understand what that something else is, and you can study this for yourself. I don't have time because they only give me 30 minutes. But to understand this, we actually have to go back before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We have to understand what they were building this upon. And what we have to understand is that Jesus, when he comes, he's bringing something new to the world. And he's announcing something new to the world. And this new idea is what inspired these men and women after the resurrection, after they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, to take this message. And not only the message, but the actions that came along with the message that changed the world to where 2,000 years later, a group of Gentiles is sitting in a room in Shepherdsville, Kentucky, wanting to hear the words about this Jesus. I mean, Something amazing had to have happened. And so what we understand about Jesus is Jesus comes to earth. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is that when Jesus comes, he keeps referencing this kingdom. And he keeps talking over and over again about this kingdom. And this kingdom is different. It's kind of a different idea of a kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. And specifically, the kingdom and the, really the empire of Rome at the time. And so Jesus talks about these things, and these things are completely countercultural. In fact, most of the things that we're going to talk about today are still countercultural today. Now, our culture has been defined by some of these things, but the actual actions themselves are actually countercultural. And, and one of the most famous kind of ideas that, that kind of centers this, this teaching, is what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this takes place kind of in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Um, but what's fascinating about the Sermon on the Mount, and we've talked about the Sermon on the Mount before, but what's fascinating is this. Jesus never referred to it as a Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, what most scholars actually think is that these were teachings that Jesus gave over and over and over again. That this is just the one time that as, as Matthew or whoever's writing Matthew's gospel is writing this, they're kind of putting it all together into one teaching. But the reality is most New Testament scholars believe these are teachings that Jesus gave over and over and over and were actually commonplace. And in fact, what you see is that there's different parts of these teachings scattered throughout the rest of the gospels. Just Matthew kind of takes the time to put it all together. The, the other thing is this, and this is fascinating, is that if you take everything that we see from Jesus, his teachings... It would have only taken about six months for him to do this. But we know that he's here for three years. And John even famously kind of has this idea where he says, if everything that Jesus had said and taught, what we'd written down, it would take up all the libraries of all the world. Now, obviously, that's a little bit of hyperbole. But essentially, what most scholars believe is these teachings are the teachings that are taught over and over and over again. And these are also the teachings that if you study what happens in the first and second century, these are the teachings and the ideas that the first and second century Christians hold so tightly to that changed the world. And so here's how it happened. And then what happens after is even more fascinating and give us a clue into this Roman idea in this Roman world. So what we see, and there's not going to be verses on the screen today because um, I'm going to talk about a lot of stuff really quick, and so you just have to keep up, all right? I'm going to talk fast. That's new, okay? So Jesus saw the crowds, and he went up on a mountain. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount because he's literally on a mountain. It's just kind of describing where he is. And so what's interesting is the people that heard this, this discourse, this teaching, not only here, but the other times that Jesus more than likely gave it, as scholars believe, what they don't realize is they're hearing teachings, and this is true, that are going to shape Western civilization. 
Some of these teachings and ideas are going to reshape cultural values and norms and things that we put in practice today that at that time did not give people the human dignity that they deserve. But these are teachings in this sermon and then these ideas that come out of Jesus that changes the world and the way it thinks. So Jesus stands in front of a large crowd and he starts to teach these ideas of this new kingdom. And he's teaching stuff. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. These are some of the hardest teachings of Jesus. In fact, the first one is he says things like, um, you should love your enemies. The teaching that you should love your enemies, I believe, is the hardest teaching that Jesus ever gives. The idea that you should actually love someone that wants to harm you, love someone that wants to do ill will towards you, that you should love your enemies. So he starts off real easy with the easy stuff, right? And then he says stuff like, um, you need to give away your stuff. Like, don't attach your life to possessions, which we're so good at here in America, right? Like, we're, we're so good at not attaching ourselves and our value to our possessions, right? We're good at that. It's a joke. All right. And, and, then, um, and then when somebody asks for something, don't just give them what they asked for. Give them more than they asked for. And when somebody wants to borrow from you, let them borrow and don't even ask for the stuff back. He says things like you should kind of go the extra mile. He says things like turn the other cheek. And then he says this one, and this one's fascinating for our context today. So just, just imagine this, this scenario. Jesus kind of gives this idea. He says, don't think for a minute that you can have peace with God if you don't have peace with others. He talks about this. You should read it. It's fascinating. You should read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And he actually gives this idea. He says, if you're standing at the temple, now we don't go to the temple, but we go to church. So church is like our gathering would be the same kind of idea as going to the temple to worship God. And he says, so let's say you're, you're on your way to church. You're on your way to your temple. And you're about to make your sacrifice. Now, in their culture, to make a sacrifice, you may often have to stand in line for hours, they believe, in order to get to the place where the priest would come and actually take your sacrifice and, and do that. So imagine that you're standing in line for hours, right? Because we're so patient, right? And you get to about three people before you're about to make your sacrifice. And all of a sudden, you remember that you got in an argument with somebody this week. Or on the way here, you were on a phone call, and it wasn't a pleasant phone call, and you said some things, or yesterday you said some things. And he says, listen, you got to read this. This is in the Bible. This is Jesus saying this. He says, if you all of a sudden realize that somebody has something against you, put down your sacrifice and go and make it right with that person before you come in here and offer your sacrifice. So in other words, kind of modern language we'd say is if you're sitting here right now and you're about to sing some worship songs about how much you love Jesus and you're going to take some communion that represents what Jesus did for us, not only the sacrifice but the forgiveness that comes with that and this new kingdom idea, and you remember in your head that you offended somebody this week or you argued with somebody or you spoke harshly to somebody, here's what Jesus would say, you need to leave and go and make it right before you come back in here. I've said that before, and nobody ever gets up and leaves, right? But that's what he's teaching. And then he says stuff like, you need to stop staring at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and take the plank out of your eye, which essentially means, here's the thing, if we see something wrong in somebody else, it's usually triggered because there's something wrong within us. You ever thought about that? I always say this, 
what is it about you or what's in me that makes me so angry at you, right? What's in me that's so focused on what's wrong with you, okay? And so Jesus is like, listen, before you're willing, and he says, then, then, then if you do this, see, if you do this, if you take that plank out of your eye, because there's a plank in your eye, you'll be more clearly, because you want to help the person, right? That's why we all do this, right? We want to help the person. And so you'll see more clearly to help them. And then he says things like, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, not in my kingdom. And there's much more, but I don't have time to teach all of it. You should, you should read it. But, I mean, that's like easy stuff, right? We can all do that, right? Right, fellas? Right? Right, ladies? We don't have to judge people, right? We don't have to do that. And then he ended. And it's epic. But it's also disturbing. It's disturbing when you really read what Jesus taught. And again, what's fascinating is almost every New Testament scholar that studied this believes that this wasn't a one-off, that this is one of the most common teachings of Jesus that he taught over and over again. And then it gets really fascinating. So he teaches this. And then the next chapter over, what we see is that he heads to Capernaum. And so Jesus kind of finished his teaching. And the Bible says when he finished his teaching, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And he says, because he taught with one who had authority. Which is suggestive that when Jesus is, is teaching this, it's not coming off as, as suggestive. It's coming off as authoritative. Does, does that make sense? It's not coming off on Jesus like, oh, it'd be really nice if you did this. It, it's more coming off like, hey, if you're going to be a part of my kingdom, like this is the norm. This is what we do. And as he comes down the mountains, the Bible says that the crowds followed him. I mean, this countercultural thing, and and people were amazed at these teachings, and so they follow him. But what's fascinating is is these are hard things. These are hard things to do. Like, listen, can I I confess something? People drive me crazy. Anybody else, right? I love people. I do. I love everybody in this room, not you. But people will drive you crazy, right? And people will hurt you and offend you. And there are people, I wouldn't do it, but there are people I want to punch. There are. There are people that exist in this world that if it was okay, I would probably punch them. And Jesus, he comes in and he teaches this complete countercultural idea. And people are fascinated by it. And so here's what happens next. So he's in Capernaum. He's on his way to Capernaum. And the Bible tells us that a man with leprosy shows up. Now, when I say leprosy, we don't think much about leprosy because we live where we live now, but he steps right in front of Jesus and he kneels down before Jesus. And I have to imagine that everybody stops. There's a couple things you have to understand about lepers. Um, In their culture, leprosy was a serious concern. Um, And and so if you you were found to have leprosy, um, you were cast out and usually you went and lived somewhere else. So you were cast out from your family. You were cast out from your, your village, your social circle. I mean, you were literally cast out. And they often believe that many of these people, when they're cast out, it's not like you send somebody away to a hospital and they're sick and you go visit them. It's like when they're cast out, you may never see that person again. And so these are isolated and lonely people and because they didn't totally understand how leprosy worked. Um, they believed if you were even close to one of these people that you could get leprosy. And that's not how it works, but that's, they didn't understand medicine the way that we do. And, and so, um, so they believed you got even close. So this, this idea of this leper walking up to him, I mean, the crowd would have kind of backed up a little bit. Everybody would have been really uncomfortable with this scene. 
And the Bible tells us that the leper looks at Jesus and he says, if you are willing, Lord, can you make me clean now? So, so if you're willing, will you make me clean? Now, one of the details that we don't see in the Bible is this. The lepers, they were, they were taught back then that if you were to go into a village or go into a place where there were other people, you would have to cry out that you're a leper and that you're coming so that people could clear and make way and that type of thing. And we don't really see much of that in this story. So it's kind of this weird scenario where this guy just kind of walks up to Jesus. He's a leper, so everybody's uncomfortable. Now, what is Jesus going to do? Because he just taught all of this stuff about doing stuff for people, even when they offend you and when they hurt you and the poor in spirit and the meek of the world and and all of this stuff. And and those who mourn for they'll be comforted. I mean, it's big talk, good hashtags, all that good stuff. What is Jesus going to do? And the Bible says that he reaches out his hand and he touches the man. Now, there's a detail in there that's pretty fascinating. It says that he reaches out and he touches him. Now, we know from other stories that Jesus doesn't actually have to physically touch somebody to heal somebody. And so imagine this scene. Here is this leper who no one will be around. And we don't know how long he had leprosy. Could have been a while. Could have been a few years. And Jesus touches him. This might have been the first human embrace this man had had in a long time. And I'm not a hugger. You guys know that. But let's be honest. Like all of us need some human embrace sometime, right? And Jesus touches him. And imagine the emotion in this man when Jesus touches him. Not only because of the power of what Jesus is about to do, but just that another human being took time to recognize him, to see him, and to touch him. And Jesus says, I am willing And the leper is healed. And the crowd goes crazy. Because wouldn't you? Like, wouldn't you? I mean, if you saw this, I mean, we often, like, we hear these things from Jesus. And I know some of us are skeptics, and we hear these stories, and we're like, did that really happen? But imagine you had been there, and you had actually physically seen a leper get healed. Like, you would be like, this is the greatest thing ever, right? It's extraordinary. So Jesus is willing to do things for people that other people have just written off and cast out and pushed aside. And and here's the guy, like, it's not just a talk. Like, he's the real deal. He's willing to do things. He's willing to touch a leper. Nobody else would be willing to do that. But here is Jesus, and he's willing to do that. And so the story kind of pauses, and then the complete mood changes. Because there's another guest. The Bible tells us that Jesus is on his way further into Capernaum. There's another man that walks up to Jesus. And when we read this, we don't understand the tension that everybody would have felt. But the tension was there that day. And what we see that Matthew records is that on his way, a centurion soldier walks up to Jesus. This would have been beyond awkward for everybody. Love your enemy. Do for others. Go the extra mile. Right? looks good on a t-shirt that April would wear and all that good stuff, but (laughs) this is taking it too far. Like a centurion soldier is walking up to Jesus. It's a little historical context for you. Everything that we see in Jesus' life takes place within the rule of the Roman Empire. And Rome, they, they ruled the world with force and might. They ruled the world with an iron fist. Now, they saw it at Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. 
And it was peaceful for Rome, not for everybody else. And so there's this tension. About 100 years before we see this event, there's a general named Pompey. And Pompey enters the center of Jerusalem, and he's curious. And you can read this. It's in history books. He's curious about this Jewish God. He's curious about this God that the Jews worship. And so he literally, he walks into Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple. And he walks past the priests and the guards, because it's Rome. And what are you going to do? You can't stop them. And so he walks in, and he gives himself a self-guided tour. And he walks into the Holy of Holies, which is considered by the Jews to be the holiest place. It's the place where God's spirit dwells. And only certain people could walk into that. Only certain priests could walk into it. They actually even tie a rope around the priest because it was so holy that if the priest was unpure or the sacrifice wasn't pure enough, that they could literally be struck dead and they'd have to pull the priest out. And Pompey walks in and just walks into what's considered to be the holiest place on the earth by the Jews. Because he's curious to see this invisible God that the Jews talk so much about. And he walks past the over-engineered curtain that separates the God chamber from the outer court. And he walks in. And historians tell us that he's disappointed. Because there's no God. There's no idol. There's a golden table and a candlestick and about 2,000 talents of gold but no God. And there's like this extraordinary temple that's been built that's supposed to represent the physical representation of God, and there's just nothing in there. So disappointed, Pompey, he, he leaves, but when he leaves, he doesn't just leave alone. He takes all of the gold and all of the resources, and he also takes about 3,000 Jewish slaves with him. Essentially, in that moment, Rome annexed the temple. It's ours now. You can do your practices, but it's ours. About 40 years later, a guy named Crassus, another general, shows up, and they says that he goes into the temple, and he takes everything this time. He, he takes all of the Jewish wealth that's within the temple, all of the taxes, everything that's been reserved, and he takes it all back to Rome again, along with some Jewish slaves. And then in 40 BC, Herod the Great was crowned the king of the Jews. The problem is he's not Jewish, but he's like this kind of puppet ruler there for, um, for, for, for Rome. And, and we can study this. I mean, he's considered cruel. He murders rabbis. In fact, one of the, the teachers that we see in the Bible, John the Baptist, is eventually killed by, by him. And he goes through all this, and it's all of this like destruction, all of this chaos within Rome and Jerusalem. And then eventually Pontius Pilate is put to be over this whole area. Pontius Pilate is, and we see him in the Bible in this exchange he has with Jesus, and he seems pretty mild. He almost seems like a good guy, but that's not him at all. You can study this on your own again in history. Pontius Pilate is the one that's credited with introducing crucifixion to the region. People crucified other places, but he's the one that introduced to the region, which ultimately cost Jesus his life. It's also believed that he was constantly offending the Jews and mocking them on purpose, that he stole money from the temple treasury on a regular basis. In fact, Pilate was so cruel that he's brought back to Rome because of his violence against the Jews and Samaritans. Now, I tell you that, and you're just like, oh, he was a mean guy. You don't know the atrocities that Rome was capable of and allowed, and for them to bring somebody back to lecture them is unbelievable. And so now a Roman centurion who represents Rome and all of its power and all of the hardship. Jesus is Jewish. 
Think about all of the pain for the last hundred years that's been caused to him and his family and his friends. There's just too much history. Centurions were a special type of soldier. They're called centurions because they would often lead between 100 and 1,000 men a century. And they were considered to be cruel men who, the way that they earned their rank is they obeyed without question and they obeyed without conscience. They did what they were told. They were often considered to be severe disciplinarians. So there's no telling who this guy is hurt in the crowd, whose families have been hurt by this guy and his legion of men that he controls. And this is the context, just so you know. This is the tension, this is the emotion, this was the disgust that hung in the air. And that afternoon, a centurion walks up to Jesus and he asks for help. I mean, personally, nationally, ethically, religiously, everything between these two men standing before each other, it's just not, it's not compatible. Have you ever met somebody that you're like, I'm just not going to help that person? You know those people? You ever had somebody walk up to you and you're like, oh, you need a recommendation? Really? Yeah, it's not going to happen, right? You want to borrow money? Remember what happened last time you gave that person money? How about this one? You want to come to Christmas? You ever have that one? Do, do you know what you've done to our family? And you want to come to Christmas? You need somewhere to stay? You need help again? And the reason that we have this is because there's so much history with that person, so much pain and heartache, not only for us, but the pain they've caused each other and they've caused other family members. And so there's these people and like, you're like, there's just too much history. We, I can't help you. There's just too much there. I mean, isn't it true it's so much easier to help a stranger than to help somebody you know, especially if there's been pain caused between you and this person? I'll help strangers all day. I don't know what they've done and who they've done it to, but I'll help them because I feel good when I do it. But if it's someone that's hurt me or wronged me, I'm not helping you. It's unnatural. And that was Jesus' point. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he has this teaching. He says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners, even the worst people do good to those who do good to them. Right? I mean, that's just common. There's nothing unusual about that. And so the centurion stands before Jesus and asks for help. And the question is, what will Jesus do? It's a great bracelet. We should make them, right? <laughs> they heard what he'd preach, but what would he actually do? And I'm telling you, and you got to pay attention to this because I have to. Once we read what Jesus does... I have to make a decision, and you have to make a decision, and we have to make a decision what we're going to do with this. And the centurion asks for help, and he says, my servant at home, he's paralyzed, and he's suffering terribly late. If I was Jesus at this point, I'd be like, oh, now you're concerned about somebody suffering? Now you're concerned about somebody in pain? Now you're concerned? Hundred years or more of pain and heartache and suffering and death that you've caused me and my people. 
and now you're concerned that somebody's suffering because it affects you personally? So Jesus could have got real personal right here, but he doesn't. Because Jesus has come to introduce something new into the world. A new way of seeing the world, a new way of seeing people in the world. And he says, okay. He says, I'll do it. And then he says this, and you've got to read this. I'm not making this up. I'm teasing you because I want you to read your Bibles. It's really good stuff. And he says, would you like me to come to your house and heal him? And I think at this point, Jesus is starting to lose the crowd. Because they're like, you're going to go to this guy's house? And the guy's like, no, you don't have to do this. See, see you have to understand. And he kind of goes back and forth with Jesus. Says, you, you don't have to come because, see, I understand you're someone who has authority. And he's like, I have authority. Like, I can tell people to go and do stuff, and they'll just do it because of who I am. And, and I'm seeing this authority that's in you. That these people are following you, but I've also heard of the things that you can do. And I realize that you have authority, some power that's unexplainable, that's unimaginable, but you have it. And all you have to do is say the word and it will be done. And then in one of the most tense moments in all of scripture that we just don't appreciate, Jesus looks at the crowd of Jewish men and women and he says, look at the faith of this man. A centurion. Jesus only is amazed by two people's faith in the entire Bible that we see. And one of them is an enemy of his people. And the crowd is stunned. Because again, he spoke with one who had authority. Jesus actually expects us to literally do good for those who won't do good for us. He expects us to literally do good for those who don't look like us or talk like us or even live like us. He expects us to do good for people who don't think like us and maybe even people that cause us harm. That's really difficult, isn't it? But I think Jesus saw us coming, and he saw us as a group coming, and he saw me coming. And I think this story, this is so fascinating, is he seems to anticipate that we're going to do this. He seems to anticipate generations upon generations of people that will hear the words of Jesus but won't do the words of Jesus, right? Uh, we all like Jesus on a cross, and we all like baby Jesus, right? I don't like Jesus here. This is too much. Which is why Jesus reserves his final and harshest words in the Sermon on the Mount for people who hear the words of Jesus but refuse to do the words of Jesus. I mean, it's like this story we teach our kids. There's like songs about it. But listen to the language. This is his closing statement, his most famous sermon. So right before all this happens with the centurion, this is the story. And he says this, But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. Everyone who heard this sermon and was moved by this sermon and agreed with parts of the sermon, everybody that heard the words that I said, you got to read it for yourself about loving your enemies and doing good for people and giving more than you should be giving. Listen, Jesus says everybody that hears those words but doesn't do them. And here's what he means by that. When it gets down to those like really emotional moments, it gets down to those moments where you're just like, I just can't do this. 
Jesus would say, the person who hears the words of mine and refuses to put them into action is like a foolish person. And I think they're foolish for a couple of reasons. First of all, they're foolish because they have convinced themselves that they're better than they really are. Here's what I've learned about my life. I am capable of just about anything. Anybody else? And there are people that have hurt me and have done wrong to me. And so it's really hard for me to put myself in a frame of mind where I could help that person. Forgetting the fact that I've caused a lot of hurt and pain myself, right? Forgetting the fact that as I write this person off, that there are people that probably write me off because of the pain and heartache that I've caused in their life. And secondly, remember what Jesus said. He's like, if you remember somebody's got something against you, you got something with you. See, we've convinced ourselves we can just come in here and just pretend like it didn't happen and it's all good. And Jesus is like, that's not how the world works. That's not how this works. If you ignore all that, you're like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And everything's good till that storm comes in and it crashes down. Now, why do I tell you all this? Why do we talk about this? Why is this? I think this is important. This is what compelled post-resurrection followers of Jesus to embrace a kingdom ethic to such an extent that they captured the imagination of an empire that changed the world. You have to study for yourself the things that these men and women of the first and second century Christians did. Four major plagues that we know of that happened in the Roman Empire. And as everybody else is leaving, guess who's coming in? The Christians. We have writings from these leaders that just talk about how the Christians were the best members of their cultures and their societies and neighborhoods. And even in times of persecution, how they continue to do good for others. Listen, this idea that Jesus teaches, these common teachings of Jesus, it wasn't a one-off. It was over and over and over again. Listen, it changed the world. And when I and you are tempted, and we will be tempted to dismiss it, remember what Paul tells us. But God demonstrated God acted, God responded, but God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet enemies of him, Christ died for us. And then he rose from the dead and from the pages of the New Testament, we see the works of these men and women who believed this and who changed the world. This was a brand of love and thinking that changed everything. It did it once, and it can do it again. And that is what happened after the resurrection. Let's pray.